The Grant Cedillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, good evening, everyone. How are you? It's good to have such a great group with us tonight for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This is the second year we have come to Northern California uh, as part of this series, and so we appreciate you being here. We uh, did candy last year with Jelly Belly, and we're moving to software this year. So uh, very different perspectives, but, uh, but good all in their own. Uh, but I do also want to particularly recognize right now Daniel Chang of Farmers Insurance Group. Where's Dan Daniel? Right here. Farmers Insurance Group sponsors our Dean's Executive Leadership Series, and it is because of their enhanced sponsorship over the last two years that we've been able to bring this series to Northern California. So Daniel, we appreciate you being here. And I also want to recognize uh, Georgie O'Keefe. Is Georgie still in the room? There, oh, right here in front of me. Um, and her husband, Richard, is our photographer tonight. But Georgie uh, works for one of our alumni, Howard Shaw at EMC. And uh, she worked with us to get Ann Winblad to come speak. So thank you so much for doing that. And we're sorry Howard wasn't able to be with us tonight. Before I introduce Anne, I do want to mention a few things that are going on in the school to give you a little bit of an update and some things that you can take advantage of uh, up here in Northern California. I do want to mention that we are actually going to do a second Dells up here in the spring. Uh, we are going to have with us Priscilla, Priscilla Stewart-Jones, who's the Vice President of HR for McKesson, and she will be here, I think it's April 7th, is that correct? On April 7th. So we will be back in the spring and hope that you will come and bring some of your friends with you. Another wonderful opportunity, the university has just uh, rolled out live YouTube University and iTunes University. And so you now will have access uh, on the internet to almost any speaker that comes to campus at Pepperdine, whether they're in the business school or in other schools. Uh, you will have access, as you already have had, to the podcasts that we do for these events. Uh, and so I, we'll have on YouTube University, there are videos of all of the Dell speakers we've had for the last three or four years. So it's a tremendous resource, uh, particularly for our alumni that are not in Southern California and don't always have the opportunity to see as many of these individuals live. A couple of other kind of interesting new programs that we're working on. I want to mention this one because I think it will resonate with some of you here. We, as you know, don't have an engineering school or a computer science program at Pepperdine. Um, we are in the process of having some conversations with UCSB, UC Santa Barbara, that's, uh, that's uh, kind of up the road from our Malibu campus. They, of course, have a uh, world-renowned engineering program, but they do not have a business school. And both of us have really strong entrepreneurial interests and efforts. And so Mike Sims, who's our executive officer for Corporate Next relations. He and some of our other staff have been working with UCSB to try to identify some ways we can partner together and really leverage the expertise as we each have uh, to really create something interesting and new. And so we're starting that by encouraging our students to partner together in our business plan competition. So we have business and business plan expertise. They have people that are creating really new and interesting products and technologies. And so we're going to be involved in developing that relationship. And we hope that we'll move beyond just the business plan competition. Uh, but it's, it's a new uh, way for us to think about how we partner. We do a lot of international partnerships. We haven't done domestic partnerships. And we think that one can be particularly interesting for us, giving, given the expertises of the two universities. 
And then the last new program I want to mention, uh, we uh, at Pepperdine have not had alumni travel programs in the past. And uh, in the business school, we are going to uh, begin to provide some opportunities in that area and the first one is going to roll out in uh, the late spring and we are going to be planning a trip to Australia so you need to go see the movie and I'm not getting any plugs for that but go see the movie and then come on our trip to Australia in uh, late May early June we'll be rolling out more information I think you got flyers as you came in uh, but it should be a tremendous opportunity a great trip and a way to bring some uh, some of our alumni back together and see a part of the world that uh, some of us may not have uh, seen a lot of uh, over the years. Uh, but tonight, uh, in addition to telling you about some of the wonderful things that are going on in the business school, we are here to hear from Ann Winblad. Uh, Ann is co-founder of Hummer Winblad Venture Partners. And I want to tell you just a little bit about her background and then uh, introduce her to you. She will share uh, with us for about 20 minutes and then she and I will have a, a brief conversation before we open the floor to questions. So be thinking about uh, what you would like to ask her, how you would like to pick her brain while we have her with us this evening. But Anne uh, is actually a small town girl from uh, Minnesota. Uh, her father was a, a coach, her mother was a nurse. Uh, she had, came from a fairly small high school. We were comparing notes. My high school was actually smaller than hers. So we, and we both had coaches for fathers. So we have some common experiences. She has a BA in mathematics and an, a master of arts in education with a focus in international economics and she got both of those degrees from schools in Minnesota College of St. Catherine and College of St. Thomas and after that she went to work for the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis but decided after about 13 months that uh, the entrepreneurial life was what she was most interested in and so she started a company called Open Systems Inc. They uh, lost $85 in the first year that they were in operation. Uh, she actually had to uh, go on food stamps for a while with her, uh, her partners that she started that company with. Uh, but they invested $500, and six years later, they sold the company for $15 million, so not a bad return on investment. It didn't use any venture capital, I believe, so she's uh, gone a different route now with her life than she did then. Um, in 1989, she started uh, the venture capital firm that she's now a part of with John Hummer. It's the first fund that was exclusively focused on software, and they now manage more than a billion dollars in venture capital. She's also uh, on the board of directors of, of several companies uh, in this area and a member of the board of trustees of the University of St. Thomas. And I guess a, a fun tidbit about her, she actually dated Bill Gates when she was actually worth more than Bill Gates was. So uh, has, has some interesting life experiences as well. I'm assuming you're not worth more than he is now. I mean, that's my, uh, my assumption tonight. Well, that's exactly right. But uh, it is my pleasure to uh, bring to you Anne Winblad, co-founder of Hummer Winblad Venture Partners. Anne. Yeah, happens. So. <laughs> I tried to edit that Bill Gates thing out of there several times, but it keeps coming back. Um, anyway, I always feel like I'm speaking to um, groups associated with universities during bad economic times. One of my worst speaking engagements um, was being the commencement speaker for the MBA class at the University of St. Thomas in May of 2001. Um, that was people were a little nervous about where they would go for their jobs because uh, the market had just crashed. Uh, so, so today I'm going to talk a little bit about the economy and venture capital as a whole and 
Um, I'm fortunate to have one of my colleagues um, from Selby Ventures, uh, Bob Marshall, here, so he'll keep me honest if I say anything bad about venture capitalists. I'm not supposed to. Um, I just came back from Dubai, so um, I've been on a 12-hour time difference, and I was on the, uh, at the uh, Summit for the Global Agenda, um, sponsored by the World Economic Forum. And our job over two days in 70 working groups was to um, come with some advice to the G20 and to the World Economic Forum in Davos. And the headliner from this is we needed to reboot the entire world economy. I was happy about that because when people use the word reboot, I know that nerds are ruling the world. <laughs> so today there are about 750 or so venture capital firms in the United States, and we manage about 257 billion or so collectively. Um, despite the bleak economic forecasts, a, a closed IPO window, and dramatically fewer M&A exits, although there are some right now, we'll invest about uh, $25 billion in promising private companies in 2008. Uh, so we've been in a pretty steady state of that 22 to $25 billion number for the last uh, 10 years. Um, and it's unclear. Um, how much venture investing will slow in new companies um, as we will have some inward focus on our existing portfolio companies, but there's no expectation at all that venture capital will dry up, especially here in Silicon Valley. Venture capital firms are really built for good times and bad times. Um, we're long-term investors and we don't abandon ship in down times. Our role in the best of times is to be part of the engines for growth um, and help companies build and scale. Uh, but it also includes helping our portfolio companies tighten their operating belts to survive downturns and thrive in tougher economic times. Um, although we didn't issue any press releases or PowerPoints with tombstones, meat cleavers, and death spirals, um, we've been working closely with each of our portfolio companies to help them tune an operating plan that matches uncertainty next year. But really, all in all, our job is we're risk reduction engineers. Um, our real job is to face the challenges and lean forward. If you can't see a glass is half full, you can't be a venture capitalist. Doesn't mean we ignore what the challenges are, but we lean towards the future. Uh, as long-term investors, the reason that we have our jobs is we look for disruptors to current industries. So if you're in one of those large companies, we're trying to disrupt you. Uh, we really are the essence of capitalism. Um, companies succeed, companies fail. It's really creative destructionism at its best. It's what has built um, the country we live in and what might get lost here uh, in some of the uh, actions going forward by perhaps our government. Uh, but we can't be confused. Uh, we as venture capitalists are mere opportunists. Uh, we have to be paired up with visionaries. We depend on entrepreneurs to uh, define the breakthroughs and really point us in the direction of large market opportunities. And we really have seen um, over our 20 years as a venture capital firm and my 32 years as a software entrepreneur that there's really no correlation between economic cycles and innovation. And I will tell you this story from experience, not from reading history, because I was there. 
Um, and I'm glad Bob and I are close to the same age because it doesn't make me feel so old. Uh, okay. Uh, so when I left the Federal Reserve Bank, um, you know, I was a pretty young entrepreneur and I got this big job. It was right out of, out of college. I was working on my MBA in an executive MBA, my master's in executive program. Um, I couldn't do the MBA because I had a double major of mathematics and business undergrad and I would have had to take the same business courses over again. Uh, so the only way I could get the international economics degree is to put education alongside of it. So after about 13 months, I sort of felt like Wonder Woman. I had my master's degree. I was making a bigger salary than my dad. Not hard because he was a high school basketball coach, but it still is something to measure. So I quit my job to start a company. Um, so this period, which was now 19, almost 1976, was really interesting, and I never thought about it. Uh, but um, unemployment in the state of Minnesota, where I was, was, was over 11%. Inflation was at 11.3%. There was really interesting tax structures. Uh, I think there were 24 different tax brackets at the time, and including a 49% capital gains tax um, at that time. Um, as we moved into the 70s, uh, things got even worse. Our president resigned. The Minnesota Vikings lost the Super Bowl one of those years. Um, so to describe it as a period of inflation, um, malaise, and mistrust is really just understating you know, what, how horrible it was. But if we look back at that period of time, I quit my job and started a little company. We became the 16th largest um, PC software company. FedEx was started at that time. Uh, Bill Gates um, was convinced to drop out of Harvard by uh, his friend Paul Allen and start Microsoft. Steve Jobs sold his uh, VW bus in Oregon and started Apple. Genentech was started, and towards the end of the 70s, uh, a little company down the street here, Oracle, got started. So all of us were entrepreneurs, and we just walked away from the present and into the future. Um, with the belief that there was enough disruptors. Uh, for many of us, we at the Federal Reserve Bank, we started getting smaller computers. And the reason that I thought I could start a company is I could afford to buy a computer and develop the software myself, because uh, I also had learned to be a computer programmer. And in most cases with these companies, the very young venture industry followed. Uh, there were only a few venture capital firms at the time, uh, because there was some issues, uh, the ERISA laws uh, weren't changed yet, but in 1972, two firms we know well here, Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins, were started. So they were very, very young firms at the time. If we march forward and we look at the dot-com debacle, and you know, we won't have any comments on that because lots of us live that, you know, out of that came Google, another powerful combination of entrepreneurs and venture capital. Um, and it didn't come right away. I mean, it grew to be the for a billion-dollar company in the shortest time ever in the history of the software industry, but it took a few years to find its way as well. So in the last 30 years, the venture industry has been an important partner to entrepreneurs in developing many of the sectors that are the backbone of our economy and world economies. So when we say we're going to reboot the economy, it means it's entrepreneurs that are going to do it. And we will be lucky to ride along as venture capitalists. Those sectors that, that 
you know, I'm referring to our software, computer hardware, the semiconductor industry, biotechnology, communications. And last year, venture capitalists had obvious amounts invested in clean technology, alternative energy, pollution control, recycling, conservation, so the, the power supplies and environmental companies. So if you look at what this has done for us, just quickly, um, since 1970, venture capitalists have created companies that accounted for 10.4 million jobs and over 2.3 trillion in revenue in 2006. So in 2006, which is the last time they counted all this stuff, venture capital companies generated almost 18% of the U.S. of the GDP in the U.S. and 9.1% of all the private sector employment. So it really will be this creative destructionism one more time that will actually allow you know, us to bring this country back to vibrancy and for many of us to create a lot of new wealth um, for ourselves and our employees. Uh, we think this result should continue. Um, and the other thing that's been added here is we're in a global economy. If I look back at the companies we funded 20 years ago, Everybody was here. We could see everybody in the room. The engineers were down the hall. Actually, they were in the front at first until they hired a management team. Uh, and now, you know, I have a, uh, an open source company that I'm on the board of called MuleSource. It's an open source ESP doing very, very well. And we, I was on the board of that company six months before I met all the engineers. They did a world meetup, and uh, 12 engineers that were the key contributors came from nine countries. So we really have a broader base to, um, to really draw from. Uh, as was mentioned with your partnership with uh, UCSB, uh, most universities have incorporated entrepreneurship into their curriculum. Many of them have schools of entrepreneurship. I think that's a brilliant idea that you, they need your help at UCSB. I was down there about a month ago and spoke to all the um, computer scientists and, you know, pair fast. Um, you know, it's, it's been a lethal combination for, um, you know, our, our powerful combination here at Stanford in the BASIS program started by the, by the School of Engineering. Uh, and we funded a couple companies out of that program. So I think that'll be really great for you. Technology has also created a lot of efficiencies in our cost structures. So actually in the software segment, the cost of starting a company has actually gone down. Uh, today, uh, any software entrepreneur anywhere in the world can launch a product in the cloud if they're, um, I'll give you a good example. Uh, this is a company we did not fund, but it's such a good example that I usually give it. The company got started and they were doing a, a small protein modeling. And their idea was to come up with um, improvements and compounds for um, drug discovery. And they started before cloud computing. So they raised about $25 million because every one of these models took a 50-server cluster. And they actually spent a bunch of money at CapEx. They couldn't run very many models simultaneously. And the company blew up. It was not one of ours. We, we, we were not deep enough in um, you know, small proteins to know if it was a good company or not. But the company showed up at our doorstep and said, look, you know, we bought back the IP uh, last year and we got restarted. And We've actually sold two compounds already to Merck, um, and our computing resources cost $75 a month on the Amazon cloud. 
Um, we don't actually even have, we only have a couple computers ourselves. We can run multiple models and turn them off and on because we don't have to commit to the 50 server cluster or somebody's data center. That's just one example. Open source has also made a dramatic impact on companies started. So we're seeing the level of startups actually increase pretty dramatically because the barrier to entry is very, very, very low. When I started um, Open Systems, I had to buy one of the first Intel-based uh, PCs, and I needed to buy two of these computers, and they each cost $25,000. And there weren't any venture capitalists around in 1976 who were funding software companies, and the ones that were around you know, were only four years old, and we hadn't met each other, so I decided to go to a bank. So I, I lit, went and looked at all the banks that there were in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and there were a lot then. And I ranked them from the smallest to the biggest and thought, well, maybe I'll try the small ones out first because I can't imagine a small bank giving me uh, $50,000. And so I was, there were about 12 of them, and I was on bank 11, and I had gotten no. In fact, I could now know when the person was going to say no. And I could just, <laughs> the facial expression, it was always a guy. So I thought, all right, I got to try something new. So um, when, I, when I was in college, um, uh, I finished my majors really quickly, but I was on a four-year scholarship thing, so you couldn't leave early. So the last semester, I took the acting classes. And I thought, OK, now I know I can finally use those acting classes. <laughs> so as soon as I saw that facial expression on that banker that he was going to say no, I cried. And the guy <laughs> gave me $50,000. It's a lot easier now because it doesn't take $50,000 as long as you can convince um, people to work for no salaries for a while. It's not going to, you're going to, not going to, your, your capital requirements are virtually nothing, including your software development environments. In fact, even just last week, uh, and Bob knows this, uh, Microsoft instituted a program that if you were venture backed, less than three years old, and less than a million dollars in revenue, uh, you could join the BizSmart program and get all the Microsoft software that ever existed, development tools, office tools, for free. And you just had to pay them $100, which was, I don't know why, just so that you had to pay something, because Microsoft can't really go free. is too hard for them. So anyway, all the expensive building blocks for most of the complex software is available to innovators in near zero costs. Um, a lot of other things have happened. Uh, nanotechnology or the science of new materials has really reached past its adolescence, and that's really impacting not only the computing environment, but also the sciences of new energy. And we're not energy investing, uh, but it is a really um, interesting area. And this is accelerating the pace of new business opportunities. This happens every time there's a downturn. We see more business plans. Um, you know, people really see the reality that larger companies, while they're, while they're reconfiguring themselves, there's not a lot of new projects going on, at least for a short time. So there's a window of opportunity where you can elbow your own space onto the market map. So that's the glass half full view. Um, the credit crisis, the demise of the leading investment banks. If we were going to try to take a company public today, we wouldn't even know which, who's an investment bank anymore. And you know, sort of the seismic instability in the capital markets has really shut the IPO window. And this is a first for Bob and myself. It used to be that great companies could go public anytime. Even great companies cannot go public right now. 
Um, so in the first half of 2008, only six venture-backed companies went public, and none went public in Q2. And I think only two so far have gone public in the second half. And this is, this is really unheard of for us. So exits are on the distant horizons. Now, probably unbeknownst to you, we actually have a business model as well. Our money comes from pension funds, endowments, family-run foundations, some corporates. Um, and we have to return um, money to them for them to keep funding us. We usually, most venture firms raise money every three to four years, uh, three and a half years is probably an average. We just raised our last fund, fortunately, last year, so we don't have to look up for three and a half years. Um, but the lack of exits in the short term will win out some of the companies, not only some of the, the portfolio companies we have, but some of the venture capital firms as well. They'll just be unlucky enough to not have capital to invest and have a hard time getting new capital during a window, we don't know how long that, that will last. In 1989, we raised our first fund. Um, and I was talking about that earlier. Um, I didn't really intend to become a venture capitalist, but I was kind of hunted down. Um, after my company was acquired, it was one of the first PC software companies to get any liquidity. And that's why I had more money than Bill Gates. He always had $100 in his pocket, but he never spent it. Um, so he had it just in case until they finally went public and then he actually had some cash. Uh, but when I moved from Minneapolis to California, um, it was right after, it, it, it was the follow-on from the crisis of 82, 83 when disk drives blew up and semiconductor companies blew up. And so John Hummer um, had read about me and called me up and was hounding, he hounded me, he stalked me. At five foot two and three quarters, I'm the shortest venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, and John is 6'10". Uh, he was the first round draft pick out of uh, Princeton uh, before he got his MBA at Stanford and joined a small venture fund. So he hounded me to start a venture capital fund. And he did not tell me that venture returns at that time were just like zero and that no one had created a new venture capital firm for five years. So we had 133 meetings to raise our first $35 million. Um, some of them are very memorable. Uh, most of them, because software was not a big investing area at the time, people would say, don't the assets walk out the door at night? And I always like to an answer honestly. And I would say, yes, the intellectual capital is the core asset, and they do go home at night, sometimes quite late, but they do ultimately go home. So people didn't want to fund us. Um, one um, big fund whom I will not name, the guy asked me if I would come into his private office and he wanted to show me his pictures from his uh, trip to Sweden. I have a Swedish last name and it was, it was a big, you know, kind of family fund thing and when he asked me if I wanted to sit on his lap and see the photos, I thought we wouldn't get money from them. So the, uh, we, we really, we, we tried almost everything to raise this money and finally we did, but not everything. So. You know, what, what happened then, though, anyone who created a fund in that year, uh, 89 vintage funds, the, the year we created as our vintage, were the best performing funds. We funded 16 software companies, eight of them went public, and we funded the A round. Companies like Wind River, we funded 10 engineers. Hyperion, we funded two people. Scopus, which went public and later became the Siebel CRM system, we funded four, you know, Israeli brothers. So these 
are at times of extreme challenges for raising new funds. Uh, but, you know, I think anyone who has a vintage 2009-2010 fund, you know, they're going to have a competitive advantage. They're going to be doing fresh deals, looking towards the future, and those will probably be the best vintage funds. Uh, you know, for actually saying, look, there'll be fewer companies funded, less competition, it'll be a time for building the companies versus trying to sell products in market. So there will be unfair competitive advantages for those who are successful during this period of time, both from the venture side and from the entrepreneur side. Uh, but there's no, you know, kidding that um, this will be a lot of hard work. So what, what does this mean real, realistically is that it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, there's, there's already, it's already obvious because of the number of layoffs, even here in Silicon Valley, that the competition for talent, which became quite intense about a year ago, uh, the cost of engineers has gone down, so that again is your cost of starting is lower, but you'll have a better talent pool to judge from. Um, you know, every time we hired and tried to hire an engineer, we were outbid by VMware. Uh, you know, and I think that stopped at this point in time. So, you know, we're very, very fortunate uh, in both this country and in Silicon Valley in that we have a culture that exalts entrepreneurs. So it's an unfair competitive advantage for us here and for those who have entrepreneurial economies. Uh, we recognize failure as a real-life learning on the route to success. That's very, very, very rare around the world, even though we tell people that, you know, that's what, you know, capitalism is really about, and that's why we call it risk capital. Um, you know, people really don't like to fail. So, you know, again, we find ourselves with, you know, a small set of disciplined and experienced company builders, probably get a little bit smaller. Um, in the next couple years, and we can have a really major impact over time. For us as software investors, we used to have to wait for platform shifts. Why we were so fortunate in 1989 is that it was kind of the end of the PC software era, but it was just the beginning of distributed computing and client-server computing. And it was Oracle that kind of threw the torch in there with a distributed database. So the platforms changed. Then came you know, uh, the internet for full uh, distributed computing, but now we're no longer waiting for platforms. If you look at the computing environment, uh, you know, the data center as a computer or cloud computing is really changing the landscape and the participants. Nokia is as much a participant in the software business as is Amazon, as is Microsoft. Who's led the way in cloud computing? Amazon. Open source, another big disruptor. Uh, virtualization, the list goes on and on. Uh, so like um, was we agreed at uh, in Dubai um, is that, you know, how are we going to reboot the economy and how do we reboot ourselves during this is we do what we know how to do. Um, we roll up our entrepreneurial sleeves and we create get great companies. And I hope some of you will um, have an easier time than I, although I will tell you, um, one last secret, which is that food stamp story. Because I didn't have enough money to hire those engineers, um, I thought, how am I going to ever hire five engineers? Um, so when an engineer would come and get interviewed, I would say, how much do you spend a month on food? And I discovered engineers really eat a lot. 
So, you know, and they, you know, no engineer is going to say $10. So when they said, like, you know, $600, which was a lot then, I'd say, great. What if I could give you $7,200 a year of free food? Can I deduct that from your salary? And they go, okay. And so I'd gotten really good at qualifying anyone for food stamps in the state of Minnesota. So uh, that's how I was able to hire my five engineers. So thanks very much for inviting me tonight, and I wish you all great success uh, in opportunistic times. Thanks.